Hi folks, Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned on every single show. You'll be an official sponsor of the Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is available for free at TheJazzSession.com, but that will only continue to be the case if you become a member, as you heard from the little advertisement that played just a moment ago. (laughs) I'm looking to get 100 members by the 300th show, and I have a couple dozen so far, And there's about, I don't know, 46, 47 shows. I I can't exactly remember which episode number this is. But that means there's about four dozen shows left to get enough members to keep this show going. And that means I need you. The Jazz Session recently passed a million downloads. There are thousands of you who listen to every single episode. And so far, 24 of you have assigned enough value to the program to kick in at least 10 bucks a month to become a member. So we are, uh, we're voting with our wallets here, kids, and the vote is not going in my favor. So if you'd like to keep the jazz session coming to you past the 300th episode, please do become a member. It's uh, very easy to do, and you can find out how at thejazzsession.com, or even more specifically at thejazzsession.com slash join. Here are some of the people who are coming up over what might be the final 40-something episodes of the Jazz Session. Noah Preminger is going to be on the show. A two-person interview, Darius Jones and Matthew Ship, which is a really, really cool interview I think you're really going to enjoy. Adam Cruz is coming up. John Gordon, Maria Schneider, Billy Harper, Cecil McBee, Chris Washburn, Ken Filiano, and many, many more all coming up uh, in the weeks ahead on, again, what might be the uh, the final 40-something shows of the Jazz Session, unless you become a member. In addition to finding all of the episodes of this show for free anytime you want them at thejazzsession.com, you can also subscribe in iTunes or using an RSS reader, and you'll find the links to do both of those things at thejazzsession.com. And also at the website, and I point this out because uh, the other day somebody sent me a message saying it didn't look like there had been any drummers interviewed on the show, And in fact, there have been more than 30. But it can be a little daunting if you just look at the left side of the web page. There's a list of everyone who's been on the show. But if you're not sure what instrument they play, uh, I don't know everybody's names in the jazz world, so why should you? Uh, If you just look at that list, maybe it's a little daunting. But if you go all the way to the bottom of that list, on the the lower left side of thejazzsession.com, You'll see a drop-down menu that says Categories, and that is, in fact, arranged by instrument. So you can drop down to any category you want, and it'll first of all, it'll show you how many people who play that instrument. 
have been on the show. And in some cases, the numbers are smaller, and in some cases, they're larger. For example, if you drop down to accordion, I think you're going to get one, which is Rob Curdo. And if you drop down to you know saxophone, obviously, there'll be 87 million. And then you can select that category, and all of the interviews that fit in that category will pop up. Uh, I think the same is there's a couple other categories that are uh, like jazz writing, so for articles that I've published. And then there's also a New Orleans category because there have been a lot of musicians from New Orleans on the show, and that's something that's important to me. But in any case, just drop down there to the left, and you will find uh, all of the instruments nicely arranged for you. So if uh, you know, you're know you a guitar player and you want to hear all the interviews with guitarists, that's a, a very easy way to do it. And I hardly ever mention that that even exists. So uh, it's, it's no surprise that you wouldn't know it was there. <laughs> Moving on to people I would like to thank now. The Respect Sextet provide the theme music for this program. They're online at respectsextet.com. And I'd like to mention they are doing a live album recording, which is pretty exciting, at the Greenwich House Music School, 46 Barrow Street in New York City, on Tuesday, April 19th. So if, as you're listening to this show, if you're listening to it around the time I posted it, then that's this coming Tuesday, April 19th, 2011. Uh, again, at the Greenwich House Music School, 46 Barrow Street in New York City, uh, two sets. The first one's at 7. I think the second one is at 9. But in any case, go to respectsextet.com and you'll find all the information so that you can attend that live performance. I think it's a, a donations requested kind of a show. Uh, definitely check that out. Also, while you're online, go to twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. He designed the show's logo, and he's always funny to follow on Twitter. My guest today is the guitarist Adam Rogers. He's got an album called Sight, and this is the title track. guest is guitarist Adam Rogers, and thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to uh, great to meet you, and I wanted to start by, uh, even though 
unless people have a time machine, they're going to miss these gigs. Um, as we're speaking, uh, you're about to hit at the Vanguard. And uh, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that about that band and the new music that you've uh, written for this run at the Vanguard. Well, um, the group is uh, myself, Aaron Parks on piano, uh, Scott Colley on bass, and Antonio Sanchez on the drums. And um, it's somewhat of a new ensemble in that um, uh, Aaron Parks has never been part of one of my groups. We've played a little bit in, in um, other people's projects on records and or a record. Uh, and I've been a big fan of his playing for years, and um, I've always wanted to, uh, you know, work with him in my own project. And um, Antonio and Scott and I have played together a lot. Uh, Scott, I've been playing with pretty regularly for the last uh, 15, 20 years. Antonio and I have done stuff, uh, quite a bit of stuff with Michael Brecker when Mike was doing his Quindectet. Um, Antonio's played with my groups quite a bit. I've played with Antonio's group uh, a bit. We've done numerous record dates with other people, Alex Sipiaga and Ralph Bond. So sort of the trio inside the quartet has had a lot of playing time. And um, I really was sort of intrigued um, by how um, Aaron, Antonio, and Scott would sound together. I thought it would make a really nice combination. Um, so I'm really excited about it. The music we will be playing is uh, a combination of brand new stuff and um, tunes that I have written over the last year or so. A couple things from my last uh, trio record site um, that I've sort of flushed out for quartet and um, a number of tunes that are um, as of yet unrecorded. Um, some, as I said, that I've been developing over the last year or so, and, and some that I've written just for this run. This may be the, the precursor to the next uh, recording project, the chance to check out this music and see how you feel about it. Uh, yeah, it's always, you know, everything is always sort of a preparation for the next recording, <laughs> sure. for everything enough, after yeah. it. So, yeah, I mean, these, I usually, um, I write in different ways. There are times where I've uh, done records and really written a whole batch of material just for that record. Um like right before the record date, you know, just in a sort of mad flurry of composition. Uh, and then there are times where I've done records where I've had a little bit of a backlog of unrecorded pieces, um, 
that I either, you know, kind of brush up or leave alone or add compositions to. So given that I haven't made certainly a quart or quartet or quintet record in a few years, and the fact that my music that I write for trio is different for music uh, different than music I write for groups with piano or piano and saxophone, there is a little bit of a backlog of stuff. So um, I'm hoping to do a new record this year um, that would include a lot of this music. Can you talk about how your writing is different when you factor in a, a pianist into the mix? I orchestrate things for any for particular groups. So if I know that piano is going to be there, I know that um, you know I have the ability to write potentially um, bass lines that the piano can double, um, harmonic parts or counter melodic parts that the pianist can play with the right hand in addition to the melodic or harmonic stuff that I'm playing. When I'm writing for trio there's only a certain amount of chords and melody that I can play at the same time. So when I write for piano right away I know that I have this sort of harmonic palette to work with that's independent of what I'm playing. So I can write more contrapuntal things, which is sort of what I my default style of writing is to an extent. I like to write contrapuntally or, you know, with different parts going on. When I am writing for a particular group, whether it's trio, quartet, quintet, um, I write things that account for the possibility of extra parts and also as importantly when I'm writing for a specific group of people I think about the way they play um, when I'm writing so some of the tunes that I've written for this gig in particular I'm really hearing you know Antonio and Scott and Aaron you know to the best of my ability <laughs> have more freedom as a as a player or as an improviser when there's a piano player present and you're not required to to carry as much of the weight not necessarily no it's just a different um i mean it, it i think i end up sort of playing more you know i play 
more harmonic. I play more chords when there's not a pianist there. I probably work more in the space of an hour, an hour and a half long gig. But no, I mean, tr playing trio is very free because it, there's so much space. You know, I can um, set up the harmonic framework completely. Uh, so, I mean, not completely. There's obviously the bassist. Uh, so it's just different, you know. It's, I guess, a little more physically freeing in that I don't feel as obligated to play harmonic things as much if there's a pianist there. But, you know, it, it, it's just different. Uh, this is purely my own opinion, but it always seemed to me like uh, having both guitar and piano in a band required some fairly sensitive listening on both sides to kind of navigate all those fingers and strings yeah around one another. definitely yeah I mean when you're comping um, it's if you're accompanying a soloist it's very important that if the guitar and piano are playing at the same time that they are really listening the pianist and the guitarist are really listening to each other so they're not both playing similar kinds of accompaniment that end up sounding like a jumble um, it's a great texture as long like Ed Simon and I have worked a lot together and and we sort of I think um, just inadvertently maybe developed a little bit of a style of playing together where if he's playing you know rhythmic kind of typical comping figures I play textural things or maybe sort of uh, you know ringing guitar like arpeggios or vice versa you know so it's possible it just requires a lot of listening it's really problematic if a pianist and a guitarist are copying at the same time and not listening to what the other is playing under a soloist that gets pretty pretty messy in addition to being a leader in your own right uh, you play with many other people and I wonder what you see as your role in those different settings when you're surrounded by completely different uh, musical styles or palettes are you attempting to maintain some kind of identity as Aaron Rodgers? Are you uh, Aaron Rodgers? Thank you all. Even since we've been talking about Aaron Parks, that's okay. As Adam Rodgers, um, or do you, or not? Maybe is is not having a, a singular identity part of the mix in that situation? Well, I hope that whatever I do, my I, identity sort of translates through whatever morass of stylistic differentials I'm involved with. That sounds negative, so I'm not a morass. Um, I don't really think about it at all, you know? Sure. I mean, um, I just play what I think will add to a situation, you know? Um, it sort of makes me sound like I'm completely selfless, which is not the case. Uh, I try to be. Yeah, I just try and play things that I think sound good and feel expressive to me as a musician. And that um, changes a lot based on the situation I'm in. I mean, the kind of records I have played on and continue to play on, you know, are, are it sort of crosses a broad swath of stylistic. Yeah, um, yeah uh, but I don't really think about it that much. I, I try to let the context inform what I'm going to play. But again, that's not really a conscious thing. I mean, if I hear, I play a lot of different guitars, um, depending on what kind of music I'm playing. I use a lot of different sounds. So I might, I refer to a lot of different sort of maybe historic 
paths of influence when I'm playing because I've I've checked out so much stuff. You know, I'm uh, at an age where I grew up, you know, in the 70s and uh, was listening to, you know, music from the 60s and 50s even then, you know. So there's all this, which in American pop music, obviously the guitar is this, this you know, sort of at the nexus of all right. of that music. So there's a lot of references going on when I'm, especially if I'm playing non-jazz music and to some extent when I'm playing you know, music that's, that's, uh, jazz, um, you know, inclusive jazz, you know, open to sort of stylistic things that are maybe outside of what is typically jazz. So, you know, and, and it also sort of just depends on how I feel at the time. I mean, I'm all, I make choices based on where I'm at at the time, what I'm hearing around me, you know, Contextually speaking, it's a no-brainer for me if I'm playing on a pop record to not use like a hollow body sound and try and take a, a bebop solo. I mean, it just, <clears throat> which is sort of obvious, but I don't even, I mean, I'm so far away from that set of reference points when I'm playing on a pop record. I'm, I'm trying to really let the music um, that I'm involved with just sort of uh, wash over me and, and dick help me play what I'm going to play, sort of dictate what I'm going to play with what I hope is my own identity in there. Sure. And I love the sound of the guitar and the different possibilities of sound that you can get with different guitars and, you know, to some extent effects and different amplifiers. It's it's really interesting for me. I think I'm sort of always looking for ways to come at music from a different angle because you know, because I, I like to do that. And also I get bored of my own approach. I mean, I want to be influenced by things that are outside of me, you know, to get new information so that I can learn something and sort of um, express myself in a different way. And <clears throat> I feel like, you know, if you can't keep your identity using different influences, then, you know, maybe you don't have much of an identity to begin with. So it doesn't really concern me very much if I completely change sounds or, you know, because I just feel like it's a, you know, it's a different palette of colors, but you're still the same musician.
interesting approach, uh, and not the approach that all guitarists, since and maybe even especially all jazz guitarists take, where there are, are many guitarists who sound their the actual sound of their guitar is the same on every record in every setting, mm-hmm. uh, which is not necessarily a negative thing, but it's a very different thing all, no. than being open to all the different sound possibilities. Have you always been on that side of the spectrum, experimenting with the sounds of the guitar? And- um, probably less so when I was younger. You know, I got into, um, sometime in the last 10 or 15 years, really kind of exploring different sounds by using different instruments. Um, I don't know if it really changed things that much. I mean, when you, I think as a musician, when you play, you're going to kind of get your sound out of, you know, five different guitars. It's not going to, it really comes from the hands and from the head. So, um, but as far as equipment goes, I think in the last 10 years, a little more, um, I've really started experimenting with different instruments. Um, did something spark that for you? or uh, Various things. Um, when I was playing with Cassandra Wilson in 1999, and um, uh, when I, I played with her, um, a lot of her music is, is uh, definitely influenced by real American forms like blues and to some extent, you know, country in a, in a, in a very sort of subtle way. Um, and in checking out what she was doing and the influences uh, in her music, um, I think that spurred me to... And I was playing a lot of different guitars on her gig. Um, it was just sort of one of a few levels of impetus to try and, you know, explore this thing. Also, you know, I have a little bit of the disease of the vintage guitar... <laughs> collector right so that's you know that's that's something that's an affliction that exists unto itself right <laughs> just some how many guitars is enough n plus one where yeah. n is the current number right, right. Yeah. so i i you know i have a lot of guitars and i and i just love the sounds of them i mean when you plug in a really beautiful sounding guitar that sounds different than another one you know there's all of this sort of little universe of differences that you can explore um and it also pushes me to, when I hear, and I'm not alone in this, if I hear a different sound coming out of an amplifier or if it's an acoustic guitar or the guitar, it inspires me to play differently. I think, you know, having a certain amount of technique on my instrument, I get maybe unconsciously in hindsight I see this, I'm looking for ways to sort of force myself to be a little uncomfortable. Mm. So that that brings something out of my playing. You know, I mean, it's a thing that I've struggled with because when you just play one instrument, um, which I primarily do, I mean, when I play quote unquote modern acoustic jazz, I always play the same guitar and it's, you know, it's pretty much the instrument that I practice on all the time. But I like what playing like in Chris Potter's underground group, I pretty much exclusively play a Fender Telecaster. And um, I just love the sound of Telecasters. And they're sort of these beasts, you know, they don't... I don't want to try and play a Fender Telecaster like it's a hollow body or something like that. Right. It's sort of... To me, Telecasters demand that you play them like they want to be played. And they're very unforgiving. They're bright and brash. and But it's it, it's really interesting to me what it does 
to my playing, what it, you know, sort of makes me edit, what I add, what sounds I sort of focus on. It pulls something else out of my personality. Um, so, you know, and this is, as you said, you know, this in, in no way is it a, a, um, a commentary on people using one instrument on everything they do. You know, it's, it's uh, all a matter of taste and what, you know, an individual feels will help him or her express what they want to express. Sure. Do you do things uh, to push yourself as a writer out of whatever idiomatic boxes you may find mm -hmm. yourself in? Yeah, I don't know exactly what they are. I mean, I just try and write things that sound different than other things I've written. But, you know... I'm, I mean, I'm, other techniques, for example, like not writing on the guitar as a way to get away from what your fingers might do. Or, yeah, you know. I, I don't. I write away from the guitar most of the time. Not so... There's probably less of an objective reason for that than just when I write on the guitar, I just end up playing things that... I sort of know, as you said, but it's, I, it's almost like a, um, I never thought about it. I'll just try and write on guitar and it's like, oh, that doesn't work. you know, like I'll, so I'll move to <laughs> okay. something else. And if I hear something that I like, I'll write on that. You know, I find it the, the easiest way for me to write is with a big, beautiful acoustic piano. If I sit down at a great sounding acoustic piano, it feels like music just flies out, you know, because of the sound. You know, when you yeah. hear that sound back, with reference to what I was saying before, you know, when you hear certain things. So I don't have a big, beautiful acoustic piano. Um, <laughs> so I use a lot of different techniques. Sometimes I write on guitar. Uh, sometimes I use, um, I come up with ideas on guitar. I come up with a lot of ideas just in my head, you know, away from an instrument that I then go and write down and, and um, at later points... In the compositional process, I have a studio here at home, so I will open up Pro Tools and put parts in and see what sounds like what. Um, I'll write on my Fender Rhodes. You know, it's just I have a lot of different ways. Sometimes on the road, um, I use music software, you know, Sibelius, to just put ideas down. I've written a lot of tunes just using that sure. on airplanes and trains and things, which, yeah. is, which is really great. Um Every technique has its sort of uh, advantages and disadvantages. You know, I've written things using Sibelius software when I'm on the road that I just love the way they sound, and then you try and play it on an instrument. It's just like, <laughs> you know. I tend to write things in Sibelius because I use a very simple, just basic acoustic piano sound that end up, uh, they end up sounding like things that would be great or great, I don't know, things that would sound good for like a solo piano right. thing, which I would like to do, actually. I write a lot of things that sort of are sound like, you know, 20, 21st century modern classical music on piano, which is a huge influence in my writing. Well, let's hear that record. That sounds pretty cool. We'll see, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you got plenty of time to yeah. be recording your 21st century modern classical record.
ask a, a specific question for example about the band that's going to play at the vanguard how how specific are you in the writing to uh i don't know the word dictate always sounds authoritarian but but to specify what the players are going to play and and within what parameters the music is going to take place it just depends on the tune it depends on the composition you know a lot of my writing um is very specific. I mean, there are very specific piano parts. I most of the time when I write, I don't write in the format of like a jazz standard where there's a melody and some chord changes. Right. Um, I'd like to, but that's just not how my music comes out with more sort of specific parts. Uh, so I write out piano parts very specifically most of the time. The bass parts are very specific. The drum parts, I have pretty clear ideas of what I'd like to hear, but I don't most of the time write out drum parts um i've had the great fortune of working with you know some of the most creative drummers who always add something you know if something sounds not supportive of the composition in some way you know i make suggestions but i don't really dictate the piano bass and melodic parts are very specific and when it comes to the improvised sections, are you improvising over forms? And again, I know this might be tune by tune, or uh, with certain patterns that you lay out. Or? It's it just changes from tune to yeah. tune. You know, sometimes we play completely free. You know, there's on on some of my records, there's numerous tunes that are just you know not a word, not a chord dictated. Um, there are other tunes I have that are very specific forms, sort of like in a uh, typical jazz tune of, of some sort of not a typical jazz tune but in the way that there's a you know 32 bar song form um there are tunes that the, the improvised sections have maybe an open section that then cues a form that might then cue a specific groove with a bass line and a chordal pattern i just wrote something that has a 24 bar chordal section without anything specific other than the the, the chord symbols okay. that leads to a two-bar repeating pattern in 7-4 and 6-4 that has a very specific bass line and a, and a chordal pattern. I have to say that the in my tunes, one of the biggest challenges is, is sort of culling an improvised section from the written material. That's quite challenging. Why is that? For me. I don't know. It's uh, uh, it's a lot easier for me to write a lot of written material than it is to just come up with a solo section with chord changes, you know, that's that's conducive to improvisation. You know, it's easy, to, I don't want to say it's easy, but there's a, I hear probably more music that might be interesting and hard um, than I do then I hear music that's interesting and hard and also really conducive to improvising and very playable. I think that's a, 
that's a difference that I notice. You know, if you can write stuff that is really conducive to improvising. I feel like I've come up with one or two really good solo sections in my life, like involving chords. Right. I'm, I'm <laughs> involving chords. Yes. Involving forms with sure. changes, you know. I mean, I probably I have so many reference points in my head, like somebody of my, you know, amount, uh, who's had my playing experience and listening experience. There's a lot of things that I'm trying to avoid in a way. So I'm trying to come up with something in my writing and in my improvising that's sort of new to me in some way. So if I hear things that remind me of something else, unless I'm going for that, I try to avoid them. I'm trying to come up with something that's that's sort of fresh. And um, <clears throat> it's easier for me to do that when I'm writing specific notes and very specifically arranged parts than when it's just like, okay, an open sure. solo section. I rarely have ever used in my own music like any kind of 2-5 pattern, like a traditional jazz pattern. But, you know, there's a lot of challenges inherent in it for me, you know, not to be repetitive, to, to give enough information so that something's interesting, but not so much information that it locks people into a sort of straight-jacketed um, format that a musician can't really sort of open up in, you know, solo sections that have a natural arc a crescendo arc, you know, putting in enough written material maybe so that it's not just open. Also having um, a harmonic framework or improv improvisational framework that relates to the song. Right. Um, you know, sometimes like I just wrote a tune and I thought, okay, I don't really have a uh, inspiration for what the solo section will be. So let me just take the chords out of the melody and put them there. And I listened to it and it was like... I don't like this, so what do I do? So I just experiment and change things and work, and somehow through this, what is for me a kind of arduous, banging your head against the wall process, I'll come up with something that you know sounds cool to me. We'll play it. I may amend it if it's something that I don't think works. I always find with composition that things become apparent over time. There's, there's, I, there are millions of them, but there are kernels of ideas that sort of exist in the air, I think, that you're trying to grab and, you know, translate through your, your brain and your hands. Um, when I write something, usually when I come back to it the following day, it's like, oh, that works, this doesn't work, you know, and then I'll play it with a group and this works, that doesn't work or it works or it doesn't work at all and I just got to throw the whole thing in the garbage and, right you know which has happened you know I've written a lot of stuff that played a couple times and just didn't really like and or maybe like the way it sounded but it's not so playable you know I'm I, I think I'm pretty critical in terms of my own composition my own composition so I've you know written a lot of stuff that just ends up in the um in sort of a holding pattern or sure. a trash bin. <laughs> this may be a, a dumb question, but is it is it necessary that things have solo sections? I mean, do you ever just write tunes where yes, I do. only the written parts happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have numerous through-composed things. So um, there's a tune that we're going to be playing uh, <clears throat> this week at the Vanguard that I've always liked. Um, it's a pretty complicated song song i don't know if it would be so singable <laughs> um 
And uh, ever since I wrote it, I probably a year and a half, two years ago, I have been looking for a solo section. And I've never found, every time, I, and I've tried numerous things the last time I played at the Vanguard. Actually, I guess I wrote it about three years ago. We played it, uh, and I wrote a solo section that I was changing as the week went on. And I'd keep bringing in, like, the last page of the song. <laughs> right. Okay, let's try this. <laughs> and then uh, I did a, a run at Iridium last year with a similar group. Um, actually, totally different group with Clarence Penn on drums. and. And we played the thing, and I wrote yet another solo section, and it never worked. So I just think, you know, three years after I wrote this thing, this tune doesn't have a solo section. It's just a a through-composed piece of music. Yeah. And so we're going to play it like that. And see if something grows out of it, maybe. But, you know, I look for things to sort of tell me what they want. You know, I'm not alone in that as a composer, but... You know, sometimes if you're trying to pull something out of something and there's just nothing coming or it doesn't, or maybe, you know, I just haven't discovered the idea that sort of floating around, just go, that's it, you know. So, and there's a f couple tunes that we'll be playing that I've been playing over the last couple of years that are, are through Composed where there's no improvising. My guess is uh, either Aaron or Adam Rogers, depending on uh, how well my brain is working at any given moment. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and to hear your music over the years, and I thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. Pleasure Thanks, to man. talk to you. music from guitarist Adam Rogers and his album Sight. This is the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, and you can also subscribe in iTunes or using an RSS reader and all those links or at thejazzsession.com. Don't forget to become a member, okay? It's really important. Otherwise, we're in the home stretch of the jazz session here. Uh, so please do that. And then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session.
Thank you for listening. Bye.